0: Chapter 7 of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Klett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter 7 Armgart I accept the peril. I choose to walk high with sublimer dread rather than crawl in safety. Graf. Armgart, I would with all my soul I knew the man so rare that he could make your life as woman sweet to you, as artist safe." George Eliot He sought her the next day without preface or apology, and like a man demanded his hearing out. There was a perfectly new element in his manner to her that had almost the dignity of a claim or right, but to resent this seemed like resenting the sacred incoherencies of grief. Avis received him gently. He found her wandering in the fields about the shore. She could not work. She too had not slept and looked well-nigh as worn as he. They did not sit down, but walked restlessly to and fro through the long-impeding grass. He could not catch her eye, but the expression of her mouth when he began to speak disheartened him. He had never seen her put her lips together so. Avis felt that a battle was impending. Even her gentleness had a kind of strategical character. Her foot fell upon the bruised clover with a martial rhythm. The whole force of her, soul and body, seemed to garrison itself. He began by telling her in a tone of proud humility that he had been too hasty yesterday, that though it was not possible that he could be mistaken in his own feeling, as she would know if she knew him better, yet it was never easy for a man's imagination to employ itself upon the nature of a woman. And you— he said with a lover's ingenious gravity, are like no other woman, no other that I ever saw. I do not believe the world contains another. You perplex me like the Sphinx, you awe me like the Venus, you allure me like the Lorelei. I have dreamed of such women. I never saw one. I love you." He turned to her with a kind of solemn authority, as if in those three words all the swift, sweet arguments of his heart had so clearly culminated, that it would be as impossible for her to combat them as it was to advance anything more compelling or convincing, as if he had said, "'The sky is blue fire,' or, "'The daisy turns to it,' or, "'The tide leans to the shore.'" He looked at her a little blindly, with half-fallen lids. There was a hazy radiance in his eyes, from the full force of which it was as if he shielded her. Glancing up with some unspoken protest on her lips, she seemed to feel this. She put her hand across her own eyes as if she had been dazzled. "'When a man loves a woman as I love you,' he said quietly, "'he expects to be loved. He has a right to be. He must be.' "'You do not know what you say,' she cried. "'You don't know what you ask.' I am not a woman to make you—to make any man happy. Even if I—ah, what? Even if you what? Rest here a minute in the shade and tell me. You shut your heart away from me. Let me stay here till I find it. Then you will stay forever, flashed the woman off her guard. He threw himself at her feet in the shadow of the stone wall, and across a little cordon of tall daisies that leaped uncrushed between them, looked over at her. Even if you— That does not matter now. It was nothing. Let that drop. Even if you what? Pray finish your sentence. You are incapable of small coquetries. If you do not finish your sentence, it must be that you really prefer me to finish it for you. No, no, I would rather finish it for myself. I meant to say that even if I loved you. And what then? Suppose, just suppose it, that you loved me. Suppose that all this spring the feeling— you have called it artistic fervor, the sympathy, you have thought it friendliness, the sweetness. I believe you thought that had something to do with your father. All the glory that has come into life, all this delicate intoxication that has been between us two, man and woman, created by heaven, to love, to yield like other men and women. I will never yield like other women, cried Avis, quivering across the daisies. But suppose— he continued, his tone gaining in quiet insistence as hers lost strength and emotion. "'Suppose that all this HAD meant that you loved me.' "'Then I should be very sorry,' she said tremulously. "'Why sorry?' "'You compel me to repeat an unpleasant thing,' she replied more faintly yet. "'I said, even supposing it were as you wish, I could never make you happy. I have the right to judge of that. "'Rather a comfortless right, but I shall not overlook it, nor any other right you give me.' "'I have given you none—none!' She rose in much agitation, and sweeping down the daisies, turned from him. It were hard to say whether it were his eyes or his voice that had restrained her. Surely his touch had not fallen upon so much as the hem of her garment. But she stood swaying and uncertain, and then slowly, as if tender, compelling hands had drawn her, sank down against the wall again." Perhaps there was a momentary consciousness of weakness in this little act which stung her, for her whole mood seemed suddenly to gather and defend itself. "'Mr. Ostrander,' she said with a gentle distinctness, "'we are making a long and painful scene out of a matter which a dozen plain words will settle.' "'Then,' said he, "'let us speak the plain words.' She sat for a moment with her face turned towards him, in the attitude of one who waits for expected speech. But the young man, with his elbow in the daisies and his head upon his hand, lay watching her in a kind of trance. His eyes had gone quite dull and blind, as if the force of his repressed feeling had been an objective presence, like a midday sun. Turning, she saw this memorable look, for the first, but not the last time in her life. Her resolution seemed to gather courage from it, and she said with increasing quietness, "'The plain word is that I do not, and I must not, think of love—' because the plain truth is that I cannot accept the consequences of love as other women do. "'Oh, I see. I was a brute to make you say that,' cried Ostrander impatiently. That blind look broke suddenly and scattered into an uncertain, darting gleam, like a ball of quicksilver crushed. "'You mean that you do not wish to marry?' "'Certainly I mean that. But it was a little hard to be made to say it. Now it is said, I don't care. There is an end to it.' It is not love, then, that you feel a disrespect for, but marriage. You prefer to marry art, I suppose,' he said perplexedly. "'You are happier so?' "'I feel no disrespect for either that I am conscious of. But surely I am happier as I am.' That sensitive vein on her temple throbbed painfully. What did this man take her for?' Painted canvas, perhaps, or a marble antique—a torso, possibly, something mechanically constructed on the principles of the highest art, content to gather the dust of her studio without a heart-throb, a fleshless, bloodless thing. A great impulse surged over her to rise and cry out to him, "'I am human! I am woman! I have had my dreams of love like other women!' But that was not a matter to chatter about. When she found the man who could both understand and reverence these dreams— but in her wildest vision she had only seen his face as we see the loved faces of the dead, sacred, safe, and snatched from her. God gave her the power to make a picture before He gave her the power to love a man. And this this, man—this—who had confused and agitated, nay, half-blinded her, with whom her nature found escape or surrender equally impossible—what should she do with him? She thought of him with a kind of terror which only a woman can understand, because he had come so near, but failed to come nearer to her, because he had startled her into putting her whole soul in arms which he had failed to conquer. She almost wished at that moment that she could have loved like other women, and that she could have loved him. That experience at least would have had the beauty of holiness. This bore the bruise of sacrilege. His thoughts, like a witch-hazel, seemed to follow and command the spring of hers, for just then he said abruptly,— So then, if you loved me, you are sure you would not marry me. We might be so happy. Did you never think of that?" He drew a little nearer to her. Both the words and the motion had something of the nature of unconsciousness. The tall white daisies swayed delicately in the golden air between them. "'A woman never thinks—I never thought—of such a thing in such a way,' said Avis, with recoiling eyes. "'I beg your pardon. A man is so different. And you are so different from most women. But if you loved me you would marry me all the same. You should be happy. You should paint. I should be proud to have you paint. I used to think I should be wretched with a gifted wife—all young men do—but you have taught me better. It would be the purpose—do not think it the ravings of a lover if I say it would be the passion of my life to help you realize your dreams of success." Avis smiled sadly. But she said, with the evidence and the consciousness of feeling more deeply shaken than any he had yet seen, how can you know what my dreams are did i ever tell them to you you are using a language that you do not understand my ideals of art are those with which marriage is perfectly incompatible success for a woman means absolute surrender in whatever direction whether she paints a picture or loves a man there is no division of labor possible in her economy to the attainment of any end worth living for a symmetrical sacrifice of her nature is compulsory upon her I do not say that this was meant to be so. I do not think we know what was meant for women. It is enough that it is so. God may have been in a just mood, but he was not in a merciful one, when knowing that they were to be in the same world with men, he made women. But suppose, interrupted Ostrander, thrilling with hope in proportion as she fired with rebellion, suppose two people had been born to show that this need not be so That would be very much like God, on the whole, to let the whole world suspect, if it dared not accuse him, of injustice in a given course, and then spring the abounding mercy of it on us at the brink of faith's surrender. Suppose a man and woman had been made and led and drawn to one another, just to show that the tolerance of individuality, even the enthusiasm of superiority, could be a perfectly mutual thing. "'There may be such women in the world,' said Avis. "'I have never seen such a man.' Only lovers think it to be possible." Nothing could have disheartened him like the delicate tooth of perfectly unconscious satire biting through those last few words—not even her lapse into her wonted self-command, nor the sealed eyes which she was turning away from him to the restless sea. He understood, as perfectly as if she had said so, that the tide of an emotion stronger than he had ever witnessed in her had turned and was setting out from him. He was only half comforted when she added, in the calmer tone of one who brings a discussion to an inexorable close. "'I never said to any one what I have said to you to-day, if that is any pleasure to you. It will be none to me.' "'I suppose,' he said, after an oppressive silence, "'if I had been more of a man—a man of genius, for instance—I might have commanded your love by this time. Whatever my abilities are, they are untried. Your future is so far established.' "'It is all so different from the way a man and woman usually meet. "'A man of my sort must seem to you so young. "'To your inspirational atmosphere, what a plodding dog a college tutor is. "'I suppose a gifted woman dreams of a great man. "'I shall never be a great man. "'But with you I might do some worthy work. "'I feel a unity in all aims, all hope, since I have known you. "'Life seems symmetrical and coherent and worthwhile. "'It does not always.' I am a restless fellow." "'I am sure you will do worthy work,' said Avis, with ringing earnestness. "'Sure, sure.' Are you so sure? Thank you for that. I wish I were." "'And you mistake me,' she continued eagerly, in what you said just now. I don't think I could love a great man if I tried." "'Why not?' asked Ostrander, a faint smile encroaching upon the deepening pain of his face. I never asked myself why, any more than I ask myself why I thrill to paint a picture, and suffer to so esteem. It is enough to feel such things, if you feel them as hard as I do. But I suppose it is the moral nature of a man a woman needs—I mean, I should need, to find great. That is noble, I think, to be a man, and to be great in goodness, to have faith and tenderness and truth and whiteness of soul. I should care much less for what was in a man's head than what was in his heart. And a great man is absorbed. He is not so apt to think of little things. He is too busy to be tender, I should say. But that is the way, said he, that men feel about women, not women about men. Is it? asked Avis, sighing. I do not know. I should think all women would feel so. But I have told you more than enough, Mr. Ostrander, of what I think and feel. It cannot help us any. And no man's love can be meant for me. Now that, he said musingly, is what I cannot quite understand. I never knew a woman in my life who could love a man so much, if she would. Pray forgive me. Ah, oh, you do not, you dare not deny that. You would perjure your own nature if you tried." "'God forbid that I perjure my own nature,' answered Avis, beginning to grow pale. "'But as I live I should perjure it if I said to you to-day that I believed love and marriage were meant for me. And whatever it would be to me, this life that other women seem to be so—happy in this feeling that other women—have—to offer to the man they—' She broke off abruptly. Her voice had fallen to an awestruck whisper. Her solemn reticence and reluctance before this experience, which he had been used to see women's enter upon both readily and irreverently, affected Ostrander as the flash of a new planet affects the astronomer whose telescope misses to-day what it has discovered yesterday. He brought his dry hands together, and wrung them, a silent, eloquent gesture. Marriage— said Avis, not ascertainly, but only sadly, as if she were but recognizing some dreary universal truth, like that of sin, or misery, or death, is a profession to a woman. And I have my work—I have my work. But suppose, he suggested, that your future should fail to fulfill its—present promise. Be patient with me. You cannot think I am capable of underrating that promise— As I see it, it is a splendid one. But fate is so false to genius—perhaps most of all to women, as you say. A thousand things may baffle you. You dare the loss of what nineteen centuries of womanhood has hailed as the joy of its life. You dare the loss of home and love for—God forbid that I say an unproved but as yet untried power.' "'At least,' she said, after a silence in which she had sat, not unmoved—' Yes, at least I can dare. There is that in me which will not permit me not to dare. God gave it to me. Amen," said the young man solemnly. Just then he could add no more. He had perhaps never thought till that moment that God really did give such things to women. How right she was about it! How true! How strong! His reverence for her grew with his sense of loss. His ardour deepened under her denial. He had always thought he should learn to hate a woman who had been too easily won. It seemed to him at that moment that he would rather be scorned by her than loved by any other creature in the world. "'May I not come another day?' he pleaded, for she had risen as she spoke, and carefully stepping around the daisy cordon, turned her face towards her father's house. "'What could be gained?' said Avis sadly. "'We can neither of us spare the strength needed for our life's work—you or I, on scenes like this.' they take strength. How tired you look!' She looked up at him with a sudden womanly quiver on her face, and held out her hand. "'You won't mind it if I say that I shall miss you, or that I shall always like to know you are my friend,' she added timidly. "'And by and by, when all is different, and we could talk of other things, you will come back to me.' "'If ever I come back to you, it will be to stay,' said Ostrander under his breath. You will not get rid of me so easily if you beckon me back." But he turned haggardly away, and leaping the wall with a mighty bound, strode off alone upon the beach. Avis stood as he had left her till he was out of sight. Then slowly, as if each nerve and muscle in her body yielded separately, sank down among the daisies, throwing her arms above her head, among their roots. She was worn with the strain of the last few days. She thrust her cheek down into the cool, clean earth, and let the grass close over her young head with a dull wish that it were closing for the last time. As she lay there, prone as a fallen caryotid, steps crushed the clovers. Ostrander had returned and stood again beside her. "'Pardon me,' he said deprecatingly, "'I have no right, but the right of my misery, to intrude in this way. I thought you would have heard me. Do not stir.' I've only come back to ask you a single question." He parted the long grass that had closed above her, and looked down. She had sprung, half-leaning on her elbow, and lifted her face, which gathered a chill from the dull green shadow in which she was. "'In your soul's name and mine,' he said, will you answer what I shall ask?" "'I will try,' she said solemnly. "'Tell me, then,' he proceeded with a dizzy feeling. Wondering whether it were madness or inspiration that possessed him, and why a man must find in either an iron necessity like this that flogged him into speech. "'Tell me—it is all you can do for me now, and I dare believe you would relieve the pain that you must inflict so far as you can. Tell me if I am the man you would have—might have—loved.' All her face and figure, which had been suffused while he spoke, with a beautiful compassion, grew tense she flung out one bent elbow as if she had been warding off a blow. But she still said solemnly, "'For your soul's sake and mine, you are the man I will not love.'" It was not long—possibly it might have been a week or ten days after the completion of the portrait—when one evening, as Avis came in rather wearily from the studio, she found Aunt Chloe beckoning mysteriously to her from the piazza steps. Aunt Chloe had on the purple and wood-coloured garden-gown that she had bought at a Harmouth bankrupt sale, since three cents a yard was a saving worthy the attention of any woman who handled money often enough to know the value of it, and the difference would exactly get one and a half of those religious mottos so pretty in the soldier's hospital. Aunt Chloe, beckoning on the piazza, behind the woodbine, bloomed like a large and rather stumpy pansy. Avis remembered the pattern of that calico, and remembered the outline that the woodbine mercifully dropped upon it, for years after it had gone to adorn some Georgia freedwoman of an undoubtedly deserving, but it is to be hoped, not an aesthetic cast of mind. "'I wanted to see you, my dear,' said Aunt Chloe. "'About the lemon cream. Can you step into the pantry a minute? There, just taste it, will you? Too much sugar?' "'I thought so.' For a woman who cannot cook, you are the most faultless taster I ever knew. Thank you. I wonder if you'll shut the door. It blows the cream. That will do. If you've got the paint off your hands, suppose you skim a little for your father's berries. Your father is quite put about to-night. Added Aunt Chloe, who seldom dropped into the expressive old Vermont phrase unless the Harmouth anxieties were overkeen so that was it. Of course it had not been the lemon cream. Since Aunt Chloe had sadly, but as she hoped resignedly and finally admitted, the glaring culinary deficiencies of Avis's nature, these pantry matinees had been rare. Avis asked rather listlessly what was the matter with father this time. Was it the sophomore hazing or the senior rush? The dangerously lax position taken by the theological chair? Or had somebody taken the liberty to differ from him about the non-ego? Poor father! his nervous irritability grew upon him a little. "'Yes,' said Aunt Chloe, "'I think it does. We must watch him more carefully. We must see that he is kept amused and exercised.' This was said in the tone which Aunt Chloe always adopted in discussing the time-honoured subject—the tone usual with the women of a literary man's family, one of calm and gentle superiority to a race of beings, and to a class of weaknesses, which must be tolerated, but might not be cured or improved. Aunt Chloe said he must be kept amused and exercised, exactly as if she'd been speaking of a fine terrier or blooded racer, for whose physical nurture she was professionally, though affectionately, responsible. "'I wonder,' went on Aunt Chloe, with placid irrelevance, "'why we none of us gave Mr. Ostrander his title?' "'His title?' Avis held the skimmer suspended at a rash angle over a plate of bread-cake." "'Yes, his medical title. You know he graduated somewhere in medicine. But I believe he found it distasteful or injurious. I think it was injurious to his health. And I should no more have thought of him as a doctor than I should have thought of him as a—a a porpoise,' said Aunt Chloe, finding her imagination suddenly bankrupt of scientific similes. "'But now he must needs go into the army. It comes into play. It shows the great usefulness of a liberal education, I suppose. But your father is just as much worked up about it.' "'You are dribbling the cream on the bread-cake. Your father says the country needs superior young men to preserve the tone of her colleges as much as she does at the front just now. And he says there is a plethora of surgeons. Mr. Ostrander was such a pet with him. What have you done with the skimmer?' "'And the worst of it is.' "'Well,' said Avis, "'what is the worst of it?' For Aunt Chloe had suddenly set her sentence away to cool in the ice-chest, into which she had dived bodily on one of those mysterious domestic inspirations, which Avis had long since ceased attempting to fathom. Aunt Chloe's face and shoulders had quite disappeared, but the back of the pansy gown presented a broad and impressive front, if I may be allowed the expression. Avis's eyes traced the pattern up and down. There seemed to be nothing but a brown palm-leaf and a purple stripe in all the world. — "'You were saying, Aunt Chloe, the worst of it was—' "'The berries are withered,' said Aunt Chloe, slowly exhuming herself from the refrigerator. "'Oh, yes, the worst of it is about the professorship. Mr. Ostrander received the call last night, and this morning he enlisted for three months. That is what has put your father out so. I told him if the young man was worth anything he was worth there waiting for. But he said three months was long enough to kill a man, and that he liked to see a young fellow have a mind and stick to it.' Now, if you'll call Julia, we'll have these picked over." The next day Coy and Barbara came over to beg some of Aunt Chloe's flowers to send out to camp, whither, they said, Mr. Ostrander was going in an hour. The next night the professor laid a letter upon Avis's plate at tea, from which, when she opened it, there dropped out a cheque, drawn in Philip Ostrander's name upon the harmouth bank. It was enclosed in a letter-sheet, on which was written only, in the pencilled scrawl, which so quickly takes on something of the sacredness of death. I have made it payable to your father's order, thinking it may be more convenient or agreeable for you to cash. Nothing more. It was the price of the portrait. End of chapter 7